So as I've alluded to already, uh, I'll be uh, doing another sermon on the book of Job. Not that I studied the book at all during my studies or whatever, um, but it was actually Carol who put the idea in, uh, in my head. So I guess after the last one, she went to Carl and she just relayed a comment just saying, when's part two? And then last week before Carl went away on vacation in a, in a very boss-like manner, he wanted to make sure everything was ready to go before he left. He's like, so Andre, like, you know what you're preaching on, right? And I said, I guess, Job, again? So if you like what I say, you have Carol to thank. And if you don't like what I say, you have Carol to thank. So I concluded the last message on Job by having us look up. I, I use the images from the James Webb Telescope, which will be on the screen behind me for the duration of this morning. Uh, and I drew the conclusion that if this photo is truly capturing 13 billion years uh, of, of time and, and the, the distant recesses of the known universe, and if by some mechanism God created all of this, then maybe we need to marvel more at and theologize less about the nature of God. But I want to push that conclusion a bit more this morning. It's part two, of course. So after that first message, I received feedback from more than just Carol. Uh, Nicole and I, we left for vacation the next day, and I got on my phone a work email. And I know you're not supposed to check your work emails when you're away on vacation, but the, the subject line read, Job and the Problem of Suffering, and the preview text said, Hi, Andre, my name is Pierre Gilbert, a professor at CMU, or at Canadian Mennonite University. So even though I was away on vacation, I couldn't help but open it. Of course, with the initial thought of how badly did I butcher this in the eyes of a university professor. So Mr. Gilbert, uh, he's a friend of Fort Gary's. I've never actually met him for people online who don't know who he is either. Uh, but he offered kind words, and, and he offered an article of his own writing uh, which I, or, or that he wanted me to consider, which I only got to last week. But as I allowed it to percolate in my mind, the outline for the message this morning, it began to form. So in that article, uh, I, I don't want to steal Mr. Gilbert's work for this morning, uh, but the main thrust of where he went with that article was this conclusion. So quoting him directly, he writes, the real issue in the book of Job is idolatry. At its most basic level, idolatry it constitutes a process of reduction that ultimately collapses the majestic complexity, like this photo, of reality and of God. I'll say it one more time, a little bit quicker. The real issue in the book of Job is idolatry. At its most basic level, idolatry constitutes a process of reduction that ultimately collapses the majestic complexity of reality and of God. So in the words of a former youth pastor, that's a hot take from Mr. Gilbert. But not just because he's a professor and probably has a good idea of what he's talking about, but also because I think his idea alone has some merit. So our five characters returning to the book of Job, we have Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, uh, Elihu, who I didn't even talk about last time, uh, and Job, uh, the actors in our book. And, and what Mr. Gilbert is getting at, and I think I would agree, is they've made an idol of their conception of God. So who they imagine God to be has become an idol for them. 
if we take their arguments in the book and we reduce their, their thinking to its most simple form, to its barest bones, they say that God has to be this way. So how they understand God, it's firm, it's static, it's unchanging. Uh, and we saw that kind of reflected in Psalm uh, 112, which I read earlier as well. It, it expresses this similar idea of God, that God has to be a particular way. Uh, and what is that way? It's this. It's that God, how God operates in the world can be boiled down into one simple phrase. It's that God blesses the righteous and punishes the unrighteous. So in the quote by Mr. Jobert about idolatry, this view, this simple view that, that Job and his friends and the writer of Psalm 112 and others in, in the ancient Israelite world, uh, what they believed, it, it reduced the complex nature of God and of reality to this simple formula. Be good, good things happen. If you're bad, bad things happen. But I think we need to unpack Mr. Gilbert's term of idolatry a bit more in case we have the wrong idea of what he's getting at. So many of us, maybe most of us, have been going to church uh, for a good deal of our lives. And, and as we read our Bibles, we read numerous stories of the nation of Israel uh, and the nations around Israel uh, warring over idols, over gods, lowercase g. So we've heard stories of Israel and Israel's God, God, uh, and uh, battling against the gods of the other nations like Moab or Edom or other places. Names like Baal or Asherah or Dagon or Molech, these names might be ringing a bell. So these, uh, these four, among many, many others, uh, were the gods, were the deities that had entire priestly orders, groups, huge groups of people and temples and sacred places dedicated to them. And they also had little figurine idols fashioned in what was understood and believed to be the likeness of these gods. Fun aside, if you're interested in digging down that rabbit hole a little bit more, in 1939, they found the oldest ever figurine, which is believed to be 35 to 40,000 years old. Its name is Lion Man. It's a neat little story, so you can just hop online and read about that. But returning to the point... Uh, in addition to the temples that were built and the figures that were cast, these little idols, uh, these, these gods in, in ancient times, they had uh, stories, they had mythological tales or myths written about them, which functioned to do two things, at least. One was to answer the origins of where the people who worshipped these gods came from. And the second was to provide lasting answers to the unknown questions of the day. And I think when it comes to myths, that's what, we're very, what we know mostly. I, I'm thinking like Greek mythology, Apollos is taking the sun across the sky with the sun fastened to the back of his chariot, like that sort of answering questions, how does the sun move across the sky? That's what these myths try to do. So that's why across so many different people groups, uh, we have similar gods whose function is the same, but whose names are different. So we have the storm gods, we have the sun gods, we have the gods of the underworld, we have the gods of the sea, we have the gods of fertility. So for the pre-scientific people who, who worshipped and believed in these gods, 
the, they, these gods answered the great unknowns of their day. But one could, and I think should rightfully say, and I'm going to say it, that the na- how the, the nations around Israel and how Job and his friends understood God, they're categorically different. I don't want you to think I'm standing here saying that they're the same. That would probably get me in trouble. But there are similarities, which I want to point out. So the ancient, the ancient Israelites, the, the same people who gave us the book of Job, who gave us the Old Testament, they existed at the same time as these other people groups, as these other nations. So although the encounters between the God of the Israelites and the gods of the ancient Mesopotamians and the ancient Canaanites, uh, although we can see the differences in those stories that the Bible gives us, we would be wise to examine the similarities. Two, again, two of which come to mind. First, in the stories with these other deities, as with the older stories that we have in God in the Old Testament, gods could be placated, meaning they could be pacified or or, um, their anger could be lessened. They could be abated, meaning they could just do something else entirely. They could be lobbied to maybe do the, the bidding of the worshiper. And altogether, they could be employed just by the worshiper to do certain things. The assertion that the God of Israel could be placated might make us uncomfortable, but there are two instances, uh, and something I harped on last time was that there are stories of God that make us uncomfortable in the Bible, and there are two instances that kind of further this point outside of the book of Job. The first is uh, in, in the story, actually they both come from Moses. So the first is when Moses and Zipporah, his, his wife, are traveling from Midian back to Egypt to free the people uh, from Egypt in Exodus chapter 4. Really curious story, uh, one in which the Bible says that God was prepared to kill Moses, but only relents when Zipporah circumcises their son. The second instance is in Exodus 32, probably more familiar, after the golden calf episode. uh, Moses is begging God to not destroy the Israelites um, after they fashion this golden calf, even though God appears pretty set on doing so. So these stories, they they don't paint God in the most flattering light. Again, that's something that I harped on last time. Uh, So that shows that God can be placated to do something else, or or his anger can be, um, I guess, pacified away from, you know, boiling hot anger. The second similarity that we see between the God of Israel and the God of these other nations was uh, in how they understood the location of God to be. So... Said another way, it was uh, how the Israelites understood the presence of God. So when the Bible says in Genesis 3 that God was in the garden, the Israelites literally understood that God was in the garden and that God was simultaneously, at the same time, nowhere else. Or when God was on Mount Sinai with Moses, or was traveling in the, in the cloud or in the pillar of fire, uh, it was understood that God was in those places and God was not, at the same time, anywhere else. So like the Baals and like the Asherahs who had their sacred places, God was local to a particular spot. And as the nation of Israel grew, they had the tabernacle and they had the temple, the house of the Lord, the dwelling place of the Lord. So as the Israelite narrative, as their history marches on through time, through the centuries, something happens. 
And just like in the book of Job, so they have their, their simple understanding and the friends are telling Job, no, you must have done something wrong for God to punish you. And Job's like, no, I didn't do anything. I'm a good person, yet God is still punishing me. Flies in the face of how they understood God. Uh, so just like in the story of Job, in the history, in the, in the national history of Israel, something happens. And it destroys their understanding of who God is, of who God can be. Uh, and it's the linchpin which changes this simple, machine-like understanding and concept of God. So remember the, the simple concept, which I've said a number of times, God blesses the good, punishes the bad. In the story of Job, he undergoes all the suffering. It contradicts their concept, what they understood to be true. So returning to the broader national history of Israel, uh, the, the thing that happened that forced the nation to categorically redefine who God was happened for the Bible and history buffs in 587. And it might click what happened in 587, but if you're not unaware, that was the siege and the sacking of Jerusalem by the Babylonians and the subsequent deportation by the Babylonians of the Israelites to the nation of Babylon. So in those days when war was waged uh, from one civilization to the next, it wasn't just people against people. It wasn't just the Israelites against the Babylonians. It was God against God. So in the sacking of Jerusalem, you have Marduk, the god of Babylon, versus God, Yahweh, the god of the Israelites. And what happens? Well, the god of the Israelites is utterly humiliated, quite frankly. The nation's destroyed. The temple of the Lord is destroyed. So not only was, um, or so, so with that, where would God dwell? If God doesn't have God's house to dwell in anymore, what was left for God? So the Israelites, they had a choice. If the Israelites did not adapt who they understood God to be, they were poised to be erased from history. Yet unlike so many other nations that have been erased from history, the Israelites redefined God, redefined who God could be and should be and must be, based on the experience that they had through that, that war and the subsequent exile. So in the Israelite mind, God was no longer a God confined to one location at a time because God couldn't be. God's temple was gone. God's dwelling place was gone. So instead, earth, the entire earth, became God's footstool, uh, in, uh, which is a reference to Isaiah 66, which is a, a part of the book of Isaiah which is written after the Israelites returned from exile. So God's realm, where God ruled and where God lived, it moved from a local temple, from a local singular spot, to a cosmic realm. God's, uh, God's scope of rule, of scope of reign, went from you know, one nation to all nations. And God could be worshipped in all places. God was understood to be the one now who ordered the entire cosmos, not just the affairs of Israel. Whereas in, in, in that time when one God waged war against another and that God lost, you know, the, the, in this case Marduk, the God of the Babylonians, would be celebrated as, as the heroine. They would take all the resources from the temple and they would put it in the temple to Marduk and celebrate Marduk's victory over God. Yet what the, Babel, or what the Israelites did, what the Israelite scribes did, they said, hold on, that's not actually what happened. Rather, because we did not worship God, this is punishment. Now that still reflects 
that earlier simple concept of how God works in the world. But the point is still in there. The point is that the way to comprehend God, it's responsive to the experiences that we have. The Israelites, they held their view of God loosely. They had to. Their their reality no longer um, worked with what they were experiencing. Job and his friends, they held their view of God with closed fists. It was unchanging. There was like, there's no way that God can be anything different than this. Yet the Israelites, after they were destroyed, they said, God has to be different. Job and his friends, their view, it was idolatrous because it was reductionistic. Which leads me then to my views as a Christian and which of my concepts of God I'm holding tightly and which ones I'm holding loosely. The sermon prompt this morning, it it had us think, well, how has my views of God changed throughout time, changed throughout my life, changed throughout the experiences that I've had? As a Christian, I'm not the same person. I'm not the same believer I was 10 years ago. I'm not the same believer I was five years ago or even two years ago. After graduating from Providence with my undergrad, I came flying off the campus. I got my first ministry job, and I stood in front of people like this, and I preached sermons about things I hardly understood. And along the way, I deeply hurt people who were sitting in the pews because their experiences did not align, or their experiences and their life did not align with the God uh, and the beliefs that I was offering to them from the front. They had this dissonance that they could not reconcile. Experience, it changes us. Experience, it changes others. Experience, it changes the communities that we're in. Fort Gary, I've only been here seven months, but I can't imagine it's the same place it's been for the past 20 years. Experience, it changes the emphases that we place on our Christian faith. You know, maybe at one point, you're more of a journaler or more of a Bible reader or more of a singer. But the experiences that we face in life changes the way that we practice our faith. And experiences, and this is, I guess, the the key for this morning. Experiences changes how we think about God. Now, I'm not saying that our experiences changes God. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that maybe over the centuries of of theological thought and and the the centuries of the development of Christian, Christian theology, maybe at times we were just wrong about God, or maybe we were just limited in what we could actually know about God. Maybe as we go through life and as we go through experiences as a collective body, as as individuals, maybe God just continues to grow more mysterious and and more beautiful and more vast and beyond comprehension. What I want us to do is, is continue to learn how to embrace our faith. I don't know how to do that necessarily well, but recognize that as we look around this room, even though we're all Christians, maybe who we're singing to isn't really the same because we understand God to be different based on the experiences that that we've each had. For the Israelites, that change happened in 587. It necessarily happened. God could no longer be who they believed God to be. For Job and his friends, that change in who they understood God to be was supposed to be in response to the suffering that they were undergoing or that Job was undergoing. It was supposed to be in response to the fact that who they believed God to be no longer aligned with the experiences that they were having. 
And throughout history, particularly history of science, God looks different on either sides of, you know, foundation-shattering revelations. You know, think, here's some old names from elementary science class, but think Copernicus and Galileo, when the sun was understood to now go around the earth versus the other way around. Or Einstein and, and his work with time and relativity. Or the, the observational evidence of the Big Bang theory in, in the greater universe. All of these are in the realm of science, yes, but they necessarily impact the realm of theology. And even returning to this photo from the James Webb Telescope, I, I want us to continue to consider the scope of what this photo details. If you don't get the sense, I love this photo. It's 13.7 billion years. Wrap your head around that. And God somehow created this. It forces us, I hope it forces us, to conceive of God in new ways. It almost drives me to the conclusion that God is beyond comprehension, is beyond any limited human scope of understanding, and that God is somehow something so much more than we could ever imagine. And the inverse of that, it leads me to ask, well, what am I believing wrongly about God? What am I believing wrongly about the Bible or about Christian faith, about my Christian practice, or, or who am I gatekeeping? Who am I keeping in and out, and am I wrong about that? In light of this grandeur and, and, uh, and the reimagining of God, for me, nothing, I, I don't think nothing or anything is safe. My belief and my faith, it needs to be constantly reworked in light of the experiences that I encounter daily. So I return to, to Mr. Gilbert's conclusion, and I ask myself, in what areas have I reduced God to just a simple mechanism? How have I turned my concept of God into an idol? How have I said, God, you must be this way and no other? But also, and this is probably a more fun question, where in my life have my simple conclusions been challenged to force or been, been challenged to... Uh, to uh, challenged and forced to grow. And there I see many, too many I don't have time to go into. Writing this message obviously gave me ample time to consider the questions that I'm putting forward, for which I don't think there's a, a single answer. And the question that was on the screen, uh, how has your view of God changed over time? I hope that's a question that you take with you uh, as we leave here shortly. Maybe you've never given it thought, or maybe you have experiences, or, or there's experiences in your families which are still processing, which are shifting how you understand God and how you conceive of God. As we were worshiping this morning, I looked around the sanctuary, and, and even now, and I consider, although that we're worshiping the same God, there are probably as many conceptions and understandings of God in this room as there are people, and I think that's beautiful. To me, that suggests that God's nature and God's character is better reflected by images, images of tapestries and quilts and mosaics and not necessarily weighty theological textbooks. In the book of Job, there's this curious insertion right in the middle, chapter 28. It's titled, The Hymn to Wisdom. That hymn, it concludes with this verse. It says, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And what is fear but the marveling and the consideration of our, of humanity's infinitesimal smallness, 
both in comparison to the known universe and in comparison to the duration of time that has transpired since creation. Experiences, they're going to continue to happen. They're going to continue to change me. They're going to continue to change you. People you love will say or do things that will challenge your worldview and will challenge your understanding of who God is. Maybe you'll watch a movie or listen to a podcast or read a book or meet a stranger who's going to challenge how you think. And maybe that is another dimension of fear. Being afraid of the unknown and the unknowable and the assertion that, there, that all that there is to be known cannot be known. Yet in that, I hold to at least that God is still God. Yet that statement, God is still God, will probably have different meaning as life uh, continues to unfold before me and before you. So unlike Job and his friends, we can and we should allow our experiences to change our comprehension of God. Like the nation of Israel, we can allow our experiences to necessarily reform that which we hold to be true. Let's pray. God, as we sit here this morning as a community of believers in worship of, of you, of one God, yet with a multifaceted understanding of who you actually are. And may we just revel in the beauty of that. May we revel in the beauty that, that our experiences change who we know you to be and who we believe you to be. That there's goodness and that there's truth in experience as, as it opens our eyes to new ways of who you could be and in new ways of how you may love, love us and love others. As a church and as a community and as individuals, at least for myself, uh, I pray that we would continue to allow our collective experience to welcome new people into our midst, to broaden our understanding, our belief in who you are, uh, that we might not be um, exclusive, but that we might be more and more inclusive based on the, uh, the experiences of life that need to be reconciled. Uh, and as with Job and their friends, may we, may we hold our understanding of you more loosely uh, that we might be able to adapt as life happens and that we might be able to adapt and, and, and be welcoming and be um, inclusive for all people and for all experiences. Seal this time in our hearts through worship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Fort Gary MB Church. We hope that what you heard challenged you to think in new ways about Jesus Christ and the life that we are called to through his death and resurrection. If you have any questions about who we are as a church, our mission, or have any other questions in general, please do not hesitate to contact our office email at info at fgmb.ca. Be blessed.